Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. In each of our podcasts in this series, we'll be donning our metaphorical head torches and descending fearlessly into the dark cavern that is UK trade policy. And our podcast today is entitled Dude, Where's My Border? UK, Irish and EU Trade Post-Brexit. The title is, of course, a kind of homage to the legendary movie Dude, Where's My Car? Which is one of those movies that it's so bad it's almost acquired cult status. I'll leave you to draw your own Brexit analogies at this point, but in the meantime, please be assured that today we'll be focusing closely on the Irish border, that Schrodinger's cat of a thing which forms the border between the UK and the EU single market, while also simultaneously not really existing. So how does that work? And what will the settlement reached in the Brexit withdrawal agreement actually mean for trade between Great Britain, Northern Ireland, the Irish Republic and the rest of the EU? To unravel these mysteries, I'm joined today by an eminent panel of trade experts with a collective wealth of knowledge on this topic. I'm joined here in Brighton by Professor Alan Winters, Professor of Economics here at the University of Sussex and Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. Also with me once again, welcome back to Trade Bites, Michael Gassierek, who is likewise Professor of Economics at the University of Sussex and also a Fellow of the Trade Policy Observatory. And joining us from Belfast is John Campbell, BBC Northern Ireland's economics and business editor. Thanks everyone for joining us. Alan, the Irish border was always seen as one of the intractable issues in the long Brexit withdrawal negotiations. In simple, simple-ish terms, how has this finally been resolved? Uh, well, it's basically been resolved by putting the border down the middle of the Irish Sea. It's got a few relaxations relative to an ordinary border, and it's going to be enforced, administered by the UK authorities um, on, as it were, both sides of the border. You have to do that because with the agreement that there should be absolutely no barriers between uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic, goods are going to be able to move quite freely and quite undetected from one to the other. So how, how does it work? For regulations, basically the idea is that for a lot of the regulations that matter for tradable goods, Northern Ireland will be required to adhere to EU standards and regulations. In other words, it can't get into Northern Ireland, even for a Northern Irish consumer, if it doesn't meet the EU regulations. For tariffs, uh, that's customs duties uh, and customs procedures, it's slightly different and it's useful to think about the difference between goods flowing from Great Britain to Northern Ireland and differently from goods flowing from Northern Ireland to Great Britain. So from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, they have this notion of goods that are at risk of being sent on to the European Union. They go into Northern Ireland, still part of the UK, go on to the European Union, basically the Republic of Ireland. Goods that are at risk of being transferred in this way have to pay the EU tariff. What is at risk Anything that faces further processing in Northern Ireland is held to be at risk. 
and also goods where essentially it would be rather easy to smuggle them across. High value, uh, low weight, big differences between uh, UK and uh, EU tariff rates. We've done some calculations on sort of sensible assumptions and the estimate comes out to be in fact that 75% of the goods entering Northern Ireland will have to pay the tariff determined by the European Union. Now, coming to Northern Ireland to Great Britain, the British government has promised unfettered access. This is predicated on the assumption that they never want to stop a good coming out of the Republic of Ireland and entering the United Kingdom because anything that's good for the EU is good for the UK and the tariffs that anybody else has to pay getting into the EU will be at least as high as they would have to pay to get into the UK directly. All of this is on the assumption that the UK is sort of easier going than the EU. When that changes, and it will change at least in a few cases, because eventually we will be imposing so-called anti-dumping duties on goods that we think are not being traded fairly. Once the UK is more restrictive than the EU, someone is going to have to work this out. That's the Joint Committee, and we don't really know how they're going to do it. Michael Gassiorek, this sounds like a pretty rum old settlement. What are the practical implications of uh, of this? It sounds like um, there's going to be a lot of bureaucracy coming the way of, uh, of businesses dealing based in Northern Ireland or dealing with Northern Ireland. Yes, yeah, so the practical implications are going to be quite complex and it's hard to know exactly how that will pan out. As Alan has quite rightly said, you typically need when it comes to goods trade in particular, you typically typically need border inspection for one of two reasons, either because there are tariff differentials or because you've got different regulations and standards and you have to control for both of these. So because the EU is most concerned about goods coming in from GB into Northern Ireland and then entering the EU market, either goods that have faced a lower tariff in the UK or face different regulatory standards, this is going to mean that firms in Northern Ireland, the burden of proof, it appears, is going to be on the importing firm to show that if they want to buy the good from GB and not pay the tariff, that the good has not been sold on to the EU. So that's going to raise the administrative and bureaucratic complexities for Northern Irish firms. John Campbell, what has reaction to this Brexit settlement been like within Northern Ireland? Well, among the political parties, none of them like it. You have the the nationalist parties, Sinn Féin and the SDLP, and the Centrist Alliance Party, who are all against Brexit. They're they're like ultra-remainers, so they they didn't want any kind of withdrawal. And then for the unionist parties, those parties whose whose raison d'etre is maintaining the union between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, they voted it down because not only do they see those practical difficulties which have been outlined, but they also see it as, as literally an existential threat to Northern Ireland because their their fear would be that over time this deal would mean that Northern Ireland spins out of the UK's economic orbit and becomes much closer to the Republic of Ireland's economic orbit and then that starts to increase the economic case for a united Ireland. The business community is also very, very wary and uncertain at the moment. They liked the original backstop, um, which was you know, talked up by some people as the best of both worlds because it meant that uh, the whole of the UK stayed in the EU's customs union and Northern Ireland had this privileged position in the, the single market. They're much less certain about what this deal is going to mean um, and they are very concerned about the amount of new bureaucracy which will be involved in terms of moving goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland 
uh, and vice versa. And, you know, just this um, very recently there, we, we had some evidence from Northern Ireland's Department of the Economy. They were being quizzed at Stormont. Uh, and they were saying, you know, there there are real risks here if this deal is not landed properly. You know, for example, Northern Ireland consumers, when it comes to the supermarkets, could face reduced choice or increased prices if the bureaucracy hugely increases for those supermarkets. And, you know, and other people in business would say to me, listen, we should understand that, you know, we, we look at, say, the, the, the big UK supermarkets which operate in Northern Ireland. They're under no obligation to trade here. Um they're under no obligation to invest here. And if this deal is landed wrongly, um, well, then they have some very big decisions to make. We've got a lot to unpack there. You mentioned there about the backstop, and for a long time this was all anyone ever heard about when talking about the, the Northern Ireland question. Very briefly, why why was this idea eventually dropped? Well, effectively, Boris Johnson, when he became Prime Minister, he, he made a very strong pledge that he was going to get rid of the backstop because it was anti-democratic. And the big thing which Conservatives in particular did not like about the backstop was it kept the whole of the UK in the EU's customs union. So if you're going to have this idea of global Britain, the UK outstriking its own trade deals, being involved in the customs union was going to make that impossible. So that that is the reason that it had to go. The other issue in the backstop, which wasn't liked, was that there was no way for the UK to come out of that arrangement um, unilaterally. What the change on, on that governance side of it is, is that Stormont Four years after this arrangement comes into place, Stormont will be able to have to vote on whether it wants to continue with this special arrangement for Northern Ireland. But fundamentally, the the big issue for Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party was this issue around the customs union. So that's why we have this arrangement, frankly, which is very similar to what the EU originally proposed at the very start of the Brexit process, which is that there should be a completely special arrangement for Northern Ireland, which would mean the Irish Sea border. And that is what we have ended up with. And can I also add to something that John said earlier about the increasing costs for Northern Irish firms and they're under no obligation to continue operating as they are now and they've got some big decisions to make. Those changes in decisions may arise even with relatively small changes in costs. Certain businesses, certain markets are very highly competitive and margins are low. So it doesn't take much for firms to change the way uh, where they choose to operate from. And if you look at some of the statistics, approximately 30% of everything that Northern Irish businesses buy, their purchases, their intermediate inputs, comes from GB. So a very high share of what Northern Irish firms are buying is from GB from Great Britain and inevitably the arrangements that are going to be put in place will increase the costs for those firms. It's also worth saying that a lot of these firms are quite small firms. A lot of trade is dominated by small and medium-sized enterprises who will find it probably harder to adjust to some of the bureaucratic changes that will be introduced. And I can give you just an example of um, a small business I'd be familiar with, the, the, the place I go to get my hair cut. Um, so they buy hair products in bulk from a distributor in England so at the moment, that's just a bog standard commercial transaction. You ring up or you send an email, you order the products, they arrive, you sign for them and, and you pay your invoice. Now, what they want to know is what happens when this Irish protocol, this Northern Ireland deal comes into place? What will the hair salon have to do as an importer, if you like? What's the distributor going to have to do as an exporter? Will that exporter in, in, in England 
still want to do business in Northern Ireland on those terms with due to this added bureaucracy? And if this exporter is continuing to do business, is he going to put his prices up? So th- these are the sort of questions that very small businesses, businesses who don't think of themselves as being importers or exporters, are going to have to deal with in the very near future. And, and at the moment, there, there are basically no good or definitive answers to any of that stuff. But is it not the case that businesses in Northern Ireland, to some extent, can can have their cake and eat it, if I dare once again use that expression, in the sense that they are both part of the UK customs zone and the EU customs zone, and hence will be able to trade freely with both? I mean, does this not put them in a privileged position to the extent that they are selling from Northern Ireland outwards to the rest of Britain and the rest of Europe? Oh, it gives them an advantage uh, possibly relative to the rest of Great Britain, but not an advantage relative to now. They are having um, a smaller set of restrictions and bureaucratic activities imposed on them than potentially firms in Great Britain. So now that might be important. It might just be that it's worth setting up various activities in Northern Ireland to trade goods into the European Union via the Republic But that's a moderately indirect route if you're, say, a firm in southern England. And therefore, it's equally likely that this bureaucratic burden, which Michael talked about, actually will have a net discouraging effect on activity. Potentially, I think what you're talking about there in terms of that that best of both worlds scenario may be for industries um, which are in highly regulated sectors like automotive, pharmaceuticals and aerospace, where they may say, well, if we're going to have an operation within the whole of the UK is better to have it in Northern Ireland because we will still be able to service um, a UK market and we'll be able to service um, a broader EU market with with fewer frictions. And and I know, for example, there is an aerospace firm based in the south of England which has very recently incorporated a company in Northern Ireland. Now, they haven't told me precisely for what reason, but it may be that they, they would be thinking along those lines. Yes, I think the important point here is something that Alan mentioned earlier, which is relative to the current situation for existing firms in Northern Ireland, there is no improvement in their access to the EU market. So any further impact, there might be any positive impacts for Northern Irish firms is either in the longer run to do with investment decisions, just like John has been describing, and it could have those sorts of impacts. And it's most likely to have those impacts on those sectors or industries or firms that don't need to purchase much from the rest of Great Britain. The more you have to purchase from Great Britain, the more you've got these administrative and bureaucratic hurdles, the hoops to jump, which increase your costs. Yeah, so I think it's, it's a bit, that's a whole, you know, so it's almost like an individual firm level. You'd have to look at, you know, what is their supply chain? Mm. Um, and, you know, w- would there be an advantage for them? So, I, you know, I don't think it's you can make any kind of sweeping statement around, you know, best of both worlds. It really comes down to those those very individual business choices. I'm wondering what you see as the risks for trade diversion or straightforward smuggling. You've got the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic is going to be certainly not a frontier. It's going to be more of a sluice gate, if if anything. So are there not opportunities in all sorts of ways for it to the extent that the EU external tariff varies from the UK tariff in the future? if not actual smuggling, then at least trade diversion or, or distortions of trade movements arising from, from these differences? And, and, and how, how would that be addressed? I think the way they're trying to address it is with this boundary border in the Irish Sea. 
the idea being that anything that can take advantage of free mobility between Northern Ireland and the Republic has already paid the necessary taxes or satisfied the necessary regulations. There is, however, always leakage, and the UK is generally not terribly good at administering these things. And therefore, I think, given the sort of incentives not to make it as little burden as possible, it's clearly going to be the case that there will be some goods where it is really difficult to stop it, uh, stop smuggling going on of taking goods from Great Britain into Northern Ireland and then down into the Republic, as opposed to sending them directly. But it will take a little bit extra time, the transport's a little bit higher, and so it, it won't happen on everything, but I think without a doubt some of it will happen. If there's a full zero tariff deal between the UK and the EU, doesn't that, at a stroke, start to kind of, you know, wash away most of the, the, the smuggling risks and also starts to take some of the, the complexity out of the situation which Northern Ireland businesses would have to deal with anyway? I think it does remove a lot of the risk. It certainly re- removes the risk of smuggling to avoid taxation. There is still a question about regulation. It is true that if you have a good that is not saleable in the European Union, it will be within British law illegal to sell it from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. But nonetheless, the incentives to do so uh, might exist. The bureaucracy to catch it might not be 100% efficient. And therefore, that will be a way of getting goods into the Republic, which wouldn't get in directly with the EU enforcing its own rules. I mean, essentially, whenever you introduce tariff differentials, let's say, in this case, between the EU and the UK, you're introducing incentives for some form of trade diversion, for some form of rerouting of trade. And that could, in fact, happen in both directions. So imagine in a year's time, we've left the EU and we've got the UK's tariffs. The UK doesn't have a free trade agreement with Japan, but the EU has a free trade agreement with Japan. So a Northern Irish consumer or distributor could import a car hypothetically from Japan tariff-free. And then because apparently there will be no border checks on flows from Northern Ireland to GB, then ship the good across to GB. And that's a form of trade deflection. And clearly there could well be incentives for that sort of trade. To the extent that we've got a border down the Irish Sea, that border is going to have to be policed. And I'm wondering what that's going to mean in terms of infrastructure to actually make that happen. I mean, what what do ports in Northern Ireland and Scotland, for example, what will they need to do uh, in order to actually physically give effect to these, these new policies? Well, there is already um, in Lauren Port in Belfast, there is effectively already facility there, infrastructure, which deals with um, live animals moving from, from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. I've been there. When the lorries come off the, the, the ferry, they come into a big yard. There's an inspection gantry. There are veterinary inspectors around the cattle trucks with torches, counting cows, making sure they're all okay. There are pens there where those animals can be offloaded should they need to be inspected. And this is because the island of Ireland is, is what's referred to as a single biosecurity zone. So an Irish Sea border already exists for, for live animals in that respect. So 
at the minimum, I think you then you'll have to have some sort of a proper border inspection post which can deal with um, products of animal origin. In other words, foodstuffs. So you're probably going to need some refrigerated facilities, possibly some lab facilities. And then there are a whole range of questions, I suppose, around the ways in which you can have facilitation in terms of, of um, this new infrastructure. You know, could you have things like green and red lanes, um, which were authorised economic operators, those people with special kind of clearance that they could use the green lanes. But there are certainly going to have to be some new stuff in terms of, of border inspection posts, I would have thought anyway. To what extent can these kind of trusted trader schemes, or authorised economic operator schemes, actually help to smooth the bureaucratic requirements which are going to be set up here? I mean, could such people really get to a point where effectively they can trade with Great Britain in the same way as they can now? Or will there inevitably be friction no matter who you are and no matter what certificates you hold? Well, I think the firms have to go through a process to get authorised trader status. That presumably has to be renewed a little bit. It requires a certain amount of bookkeeping. But in between times, the aim is that it should give them almost uh, exactly the same unfettered access as they have at the moment. This puts a lot of trust in the firms. And I confess I worry when I think about Volkswagen about three years ago cheating on diesel emissions. I think about Boeing putting planes in the air, really, which would not have passed any independent regulatory inspection, to think that whereas we used to teach our students, don't worry, very large firms have so much reputation at stake, they will always stick to the rules. We do now have to ask, are we really sure? Now, if you've got that worry in the back of your mind, there has to be just a little bit of monitoring going on all the time, a bit of checking up and so on. So I think de facto it's not going to be exactly as if the current situation pertained where we're all in the same legal structure and there were absolutely no formalities. There's a second issue here, which is that to obtain authorised economic operator status for an individual firm is actually a very expensive process. You have to monitor and assure your entire supply chain. Uh, There are issues to do with security and so on. So there's quite a lot that a firm needs to do in order to obtain that status. It's not simply a question of filling out an application form, waiting a few months and getting that status. So for many firms, that probably won't be cost effective. I think this has got, got to be stuff which will be worked out by the, the joint committee and the, the specialised committee when, they, when they're eventually set up and get to work. Because I think clearly if you want this deal to stick in the longer term, because remember that the Northern Ireland Assembly can, can vote to end this arrangement, you are going to have to facilitate businesses as best you can. And maybe that some of the, the ideas which we heard around alternative arrangements, remember that, you know, that alternative arrangements which dominated a lot of the discussion about the Irish border, about using all these kind of technological facilitations, those could come back onto the agenda again. You know, there was talk, for example, of, you know, could you have some sort of tiered scheme for trusted traders where, you know, you you would have a very low level of, of checks if your level of assurance is very high. For smaller businesses, perhaps it would be more checks, but the process would be less onerous. So you could imagine that some of those things could start to come back onto the agenda. And certainly Northern Ireland businesses are going to be pushing for the greatest amount of kind of facilitation that is available. 
We're all very aware of the reason why the Brexit process has jumped through so many hoops in order to avoid the re-establishment of a hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland, the security issues, the, the historic issues around that. Does this deal mean that the threat of a hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland has now completely receded? Or is that still sort of hanging in the distance as a possible threat still? Well, I think John mentioned the answer to that in a sense just now. The um, Stormont has the right every four years to uh, review and, if it chooses, renew the process. And so it could fall into disuse. And under those circumstances, almost certainly there would have to be um, what, in what you term a hard border. There is also a, a shorter-term concern, which is which is this. So let's say we get to the end of the transition period and there's no trade deal, the atmosphere is very bad, things break down. Does the UK follow through with its commitments under withdrawal, withdrawal deal? Or does the UK backslide and say, well, we're not going to inspect anything at the, the Northern Ireland ports. If you want to protect the integrity of your single market, that's up to you how you do it. And then what happens then? Is the, the, the hard border suddenly back on, on the agenda in little over a year's time? And, you know, I think there is clearly a little bit of nervousness in, in the commission around this because you, you continue to have the prime minister insisting there won't need to be any any checks um, from GB to NI. But Michel Barnier came here to Belfast to make a speech just to emphasise there would be. So there is that question of, you know, what is the sanction if in a very bad kind of trade talks breakdown, the UK just says, no, we're not enforcing the protocol at the Northern Ireland ports. Sort yourself out. I wonder what we think about the question of Irish reunification. It's something which is kind of hovering in the middle distance that's been mentioned a few times, this idea that as Northern Ireland remains economically aligned with the Irish Republic and, and less so perhaps with, with Great Britain, does the Brexit settlement bring the prospect of Irish reunification closer? I think it can be easy to overstate it because the fear from unionists certainly is that if Northern Ireland drifts further and further into Dublin's economic orbit, then that starts to undermine the economic case for the union. But as we know, when it comes to big constitutional decisions, people are not always voting on the economy. If you know, if Brexit has taught us anything, it has it has taught us that. So you're not going to people unionists in Northern Ireland sitting down with spreadsheets trying to work out if trade policy will mean they're going to be a little bit better off in United Ireland. You know, history and politics and culture trumps all of that. I guess I think that's right for the next few years, perhaps the next decade. But in a sense, uh, we really believe that politics does tend to follow trade. In a sense, the whole rationale of an open rules-based trading system in the world was that this is one of the ways that we can try and stop ourselves from fighting. So I think in the longer run, if it really seems that this is very costly, that you're going to find some sort of pressure building up so I don't think that we can say that this has no effect on the possibility of um, reunification. But I do think we can certainly say we would almost certainly not be looking at it for a decade or so. I'm going to ask each of you one, one question to wrap up. Same, same question to all of you. Do you think the Brexit settlement for Northern Ireland is a sustainable one 
or will pressure eventually build up for a review of the arrangements? John, what's your view? I think we need to see, first of all, see um, what the Joint Committee and the, the Specialised Committee are able to thrash out. Because I, I think if it's one where the obligations on Northern Ireland businesses are very, very onerous, that is going to put this settlement under pressure in, in the medium term. And I, I also think it is not a good situation for stability if we have a settlement which unionists have absolute opposition to. So I would agree with John. I would also add to that that I think it's potentially sustainable, but it will require a lot of goodwill on all sides. So in Britain, in Northern Ireland and in the EU to make it work. So a lot will, I think, depend on the nature of the settlement that is ultimately reached between the UK and the EU and on the longer run uh, economic and political relations between the UK and the EU for, for this to remain sustainable. I, I agree with that. I guess I would uh, express it slightly differently. Every detail, some of them, are not going to be sustainable. We are going to find, as the Joint Committee works on this, and as time goes on, we find little frictions here and there. The question then is, are we willing to address them? And that, I think, goes back exactly to what Michael said. That's going to depend on relations, on a commitment to making this work, even if it involves little bits of bureaucracy or little bits of inconvenience. I think exactly the point that John made previously, that if uh, relations became so bad that the British government decided it didn't really want to play this game, then, of course, the whole thing looks uh, completely different. Gentlemen, it's been a fascinating discussion today. Northern Ireland has long been seen as, as the fault line of the Brexit process and it will be very interesting indeed to see how the, uh, the agreed settlement plays out over time. There, sadly, we must end it. So it only remains for me to say a big thank you to our guests today, to Alan Winters, to Michael Gasiorek and to John Campbell. And many thanks to all of you for listening in. Hope you've enjoyed listening and I hope you've learnt as much today as I have. Thanks again and we look forward to having you join us next time on Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.